Hello and welcome to today's podcast brought to you by the Video Journal of Hematological Oncology. Today, we'll be hearing from four leading experts who are going to talk us through the impacts of the tumor microenvironment on outcomes with immunotherapy for patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We'll first be hearing from Patricia Perez-Galan from Idabaps University Hospital Clinic in Barcelona. Patricia will be discussing how the microenvironment contributes to follicular lymphoma pathogenesis and presents therapeutic opportunities. Over to you, Patricia. So it is currently accepted that follicular lymphoma arises as a result of the crosstalk between specific, well-defined uh, genetic aberrations and a supportive and complex uh, microenvironment that is integrated by different types of stromal cells, uh, T cells, populations, and tumor-associated macrophages and neutrophils. And in this niche, uh, follicular analytic cells and macrophages that were already uh, associated with poor prognosis in this seminal study in 2004 support um, in uh, ex vivo culture, support follicular lymphoma viability. And also we have demonstrated that the dendritic cells are able to activate a series of biological pathways in lymphoma cells, such as angiogenesis, transendothelial migration, or cell proliferation that contributes to follicular lymphoma progression and dissemination. In this niche, we have also um, found high levels of the chemokine CCL22, and uh, in this context, uh, the PE3 kinase delta inhibitors, idolalicid, reduces the, the secretion of this chemokine, and in consequence, uh, the recruitment of these populations to the tumor site. Moreover, idolalicid is also able to reduce CD4 ligand signaling activation and the derived proliferation that is orchestrated by T follicular hepocells. In this uh, context, we have also found high levels of two factors, CCL2 and CSF1, and that are uh, um, fundamental for monocyte recruitment and activation to macrophages. And in fact, uh, we have been able to demonstrate in our cultural systems that monocytes are recruited to the tumor site and differentiate into macrophages that express high levels of the M2 market CD163 and low levels of the M1 market CD86. In the last year, we have been developing follicular lymphoma tumoroids in the frame of the InLympho project uh, by using um, peripheral blood and lymph node patient samples. And we have optimized the conditions to, uh, that allow uh, the proliferation of both uh, follicular lymphoma and T-accompanying cells. And we are able also to include a tolerable monocyte in these structures. These monocytes, as we have seen in 2D cultures, are able to differentiate into macrophages that express typical N2 markers, in this case, assessed by gene expression. These uh, M2 macrophages uh, support uh, follicular lymphoma cells ex vivo, uh, and also they engage a particular um, transcriptional programs that recapitulate in fundamental uh, hormones of cancer, such as angiogenesis, addition, and invasion. As I mentioned before, CSF1, CSF1 receptor pathway is fundamental for monocyte and macrophages, and also an actionable target for therapy. So thus, uh, we analyzed the expression of these, uh, of these factors in follicular lymphoma, and we first acknowledged that the CSF1 cytokine was highly expressed in high-grade follicular lymphoma serum, and also the expression of CSF1 receptor um, in, in, uh, in tumor biopsies, we observed an heterogeneous expression among patients, both in follicular and interfollicular areas, uh, highly higher in this later. And uh, like, uh, similarly to CSF1, the expression of CSF1 receptor was higher in high-grade patients. These patients were homogeneously treated uh, with ARCHOP at our institution, and we were able to correlate high CSF1 receptor expression with reduced overall survival, together also with higher risk of transformation to an aggressive lymphoma. 
both uh, in terms of interfollicular and follicular expression. I believe you also investigated the CSF1 receptor as a potential target for therapy for follicular lymphoma. Could you talk a bit more on that? We generated a mouse cosenograph, injected both follicular lymphoma and dendritic cells. In these mouse models, we were able to demonstrate that macrophages identified by F4E were recruited to the tumor site. And as these macrophages were mainly um, M2 macrophages because they are spread high levels of the M2 market CD206 and low levels of the M1 market ions. So once tumor were established, uh, mice were treated with either rituximab with the CSF1 receptor inhibitor PLX3397 or with a combination. And what we observed was that those mice treated with single agents uh, observe and display a reduction in the tumor volume, but it was really the combination, the treatment that really stopped tumor growth. We validated these results uh, in the biopsies of this uh, biomestochemetry of these of these mice. We observed this depletion of tumor cells a reduction in, in tumor proliferation, and a really uh, high activation of uh, apoptosis, especially in the combination. Regarding macrophages, uh, they disappear, uh, they were reduced in all conditions, but the remaining macrophages uh, were um, repolarized to M1 because they express high INOS and low CD206. Thanks for sharing that update on follicular lymphoma, Patricia. Next up, we have Stephen Ansel of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Stephen will be talking on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy and different lymphoma subtypes. Over to you, Stephen. So as we start, just reminding folks, what are you doing with immune checkpoint blockade? T-cells will respond to antigen through the T-cell receptor being engaged and a second either co-stimulatory or co-inhibitory signal. And uh, our focus is largely going to be on PD-1, PD-L1 interactions. But I think important to recognize that there are many other immune checkpoints and some of the principles will apply there too. So firstly, just to remind us what we already know, Hodgkin lymphoma is, a very, is very effectively treated with PD-1 blockade. These are the data updated from pembrolizumab trials and you can see response rates in the 65 to 75% range and progression-free survival that actually is quite favorable However, I would point out that you see a persistent decrease in the progression-free survival curve, suggesting that we're not actually seeing a plateau. So there is clearly room for improvement. There are new PD-1 antibodies now available. And I think uh, the encouraging thing is that the results are holding and really look very promising. This is a new antibody to zalizumab. The overall response rate here is 87% with a 63% CR rate. So there may even be new antibodies with even greater efficacy. But I think the key points from this talk are, what have we learned about why the PD-1 blockade works in some cases and not in others? Data from Hodgkin lymphoma, and the point I would make is that there is significant uh, amplification or copy number gain associated with PD-L1 and PD-L2 overexpression. That's associated if there's more expression of PD-L1 and PD-L2 with a better outcome. I think what that's led us to understand is that if there is actually amplification or copy number gain, and the disease might be a different one, such as primary metastinal large B-cell lymphoma, responses again are seen. And you can see here where amplifications of chromosome 9P24.1 are commonly seen the response rate here approaches 50%. Similarly, if there's a different reason for there to be amplification or increased expression of pd one you can get higher response rates. 
Here in this case, EBV driving the process as shown in NKT cell lymphomas. And you can see again, five out of seven patients benefiting here. So I think in principle, if there's a genetic or viral reason for overexpression of the ligand, those tend to be patients who respond. And the reason for that is follicular lymphoma, where neither of those two circumstances are typical, you can see the overall response rate here was only 4%. In large cell lymphoma, again, you can see similarly poor overall response rates of 10% in transplant failed patients, compared to only 3% if the patients have primary refractory disease. So you might say, why is that? And I think we're learning that an inflamed microenvironment is key to having that uh, good response to immune checkpoint blockade. But I would even put to you that it needs to be inflamed on the basis of either a viral or a genetic reason for there to be overexpression of the ligands, for there to be responses to treatment. So the reason for that I'd like to highlight now is that basically the biology is still something that we are learning over time. So there are a number of factors that complicate responses to treatment with PD-1 blockade. And the first is that not every PD-1 positive cell is actually exhausted or inhibited. Is bright PD-1 staining in the follicle, and these are T follicular helper cells. Dim staining in between the follicles may be the exhausted population. So blocking this cell compared to this cell would result in a different effect on the T cells. And when you actually look at the PD-1 blocking, uh, PD-1 dim population, potentially exhausted, important also to know that just expressing PD-1 does not make you an exhausted cell. PD-1 expression, you can actually see these PD-1 positive cells made far more cytokines than PD-1 negative cells because they're actually activated. When LAG3 is expressed, these are the exhausted cells. Hence, those patients have a much lower likelihood of being activated and those T cells are therefore more exhausted. Another further complicating factor that I think we need to recognize is that the cell we thought we were targeting may actually not be as relevant as we believed. So classical Hodgkin lymphoma, the PD-1 positive cell that may well be blocked and, and, and revitalized, if you like, is actually one that has more of a Th1 Treg phenotype than a CD8 cell that we might have thought was important to begin with. A further factor that I think is relevant over or typical expression of 27 and 28, CD27 and 28, the co-stimulatory factors, and you can see in tonsil, there are lots of PDA of, of uh, CD27, 28 bright cells, far less in follicular lymphoma. <clears throat> and the reason that matters is that the outcome of those patients with less expression is worse. And if we bring it back to how this applies to PD-1 blockade, one of the ways in which PD-1 blockade works is to direct the signaling through CD28. So if there's less expression of CD28, outcomes are gonna clearly be worse when PD-1 blockade is used. Further two factors is to say that we often think that PD-1 and PD-L1 has to intersect just on cells. Going to show you that there's data to say both of those uh, proteins are actually soluble as well. Here again in Hodgkin lymphoma, PDL1 and PDL2 are significantly detectable within the serum, far more than normal, and that has a significant ability to depress and substantially uh, suppress the ability of T cells to proliferate. So again, important to know that PDL1 and PDL2 may have distant effects on T cells rather than just local. Furthermore, there is soluble PD1 detectable in Hodgkin lymphoma, and how that may be relevant is that that may bind to the ligands that are overexpressed on the tumor cell, 
and actually provide a reverse signal that promotes proliferation of those cells, this again can be inhibited by blocking uh, PD-1 using nivolumab. So what does all of that teach us? I think there are multiple immunological barriers that we need to be thinking about. I think lessons learned is that if there's genetic alterations at chromosome 9p24.1, or viral reasons for overexpression of PD-L1, those patients typically uh, respond best to PD-1 blockade. In contrast, others respond less well, and that might be because we may be affecting different populations of T cells and actually having an effect predominantly on soluble receptor ligands rather than the ones expressed on cells. So as I think we look to the future, important to think about the fact that we will need to do combination approaches either with other, with other immune checkpoints or engaging the innate immune system or adding chemotherapy. So with that, I'll end and thank you for your time and attention. Thank you, Stephen. Following on from that, Frederick Locke of the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Florida will be discussing the impact of the lymphoma microenvironment on the efficacy of CAR T cell therapy. Take it away, Frederick. So you're all familiar with the, the pivotal Zuma-1 clinical trial. Uh, these, this uh, slide just shows you the OS and PFS curves with nice uh, flattening of those curves out at around two years with 27.1 month follow-up. The median duration of response is over 11 months and about 40% of patients remain in ongoing remission. And with even further update of this data, we can see that with a median follow-up of 51.1 months, there's a 25.8 month median OS and a four-year OS rate of about 44%. So really amazing and durable responses. But, but what are the factors that sort of predict for these response? And, and on Zuma 1, uh, looking at standard features that would uh, typically associate with response or lack of response in DLBCL, uh, those were not obvious in the approximately 100 patients on the Zuma 1 trial. Looking at the biomarkers from Zuma 1, uh, we were able to, to demonstrate that the size of the tumor, uh, we call it tumor burden, uh, and the expansion of the CAR T cells within the patient over the first month, here measured as, as the peak CAR T cells in the blood, um, are, are two key features that, that uh, predict for response or associate with response to CAR T cell therapy. And in fact, the ratio of those two, the peak CAR T cell expansion in relation to the size of the tumor, is really a key determinant in the response to AxiCell. We also observed that uh, on the day of infusion, and actually even prior to that, that inflammatory markers associate with lack of durable response. And, and uh, this is just showing you ferritin and IL-6 on day zero. Um, the higher those markers are, and these are markers of systemic inflammation, the less likely a patient is to have a durable response. So at Moffitt, we hypothesized that this systemic and tumor immune microenvironment may impact AxiCell efficacy. And uh, one of our junior faculty members, Mike Jane, um, did a lot of this work and collected a lot of clinical data and tumor biopsies, which I'll talk about, and really uh, bucketed patients into two things. These are AxiCell-treated DLBCL patients as either durable responders, those who have a minimum of six months follow-up are in ongoing remission, and non-durable responders, those who, who progress or, or unfortunately die. And uh, we sort of recapitulated and showed what uh, we had seen in Zuma 1, which is that ferritin and IL-6, in particular on the day of infusion, uh, were associated, uh, higher levels were associated with a non-durable response, or NDR. 
And in fact, uh, ferritin and IL-6 from pretreatment to the, their peak levels post-treatment, um, uh, excuse me, pre-lymphodepleting chemotherapy and day zero, the day of infusion are associated. So the, the lymphodepleting chemotherapy doesn't have a huge impact on these markers. Uh, and they associate with each other. So ferritin is, is um, sort of a surrogate marker for IL-6, or at least um, a, a general marker of inflammation in the, the systemic, systemic inflammation in these patients. Uh, and so um, Mike did a lot of work to collect uh, tumor biopsies on these patients, and we took a look at these tumor biopsies uh, by IHC, thinking that maybe uh, checkpoint ligand expression uh, or checkpoints on T cells or checkpoint ligand expression on the tumor cells or even loss of MHC might predict for uh, lack of response. And what we found was interesting, PD ligand 1 is um, upregulated and MHC uh, and MHC2 is also high on the tumor cells, the B cells of patients who do not have durable responses. Now, MHC class 2 can act as a, as a checkpoint ligand. Of course, PD ligand 1 is a checkpoint ligand. And so, um, we, we sort of wondered, you know, what is this, um, what is going on? And we looked to um, nanostring, so a limited gene set expression profiling and non-durable responders compared to durable responders and found expression, high expression of uh, interferon signaling genes. So these are downstream of interferon. These aren't interferons themselves, but the interferon stimulated genes in non-durable responders. And actually, we did RNA-seq on a smaller data set or a smaller set of these patients and found, um, by looking in the literature, the Andy Min lab had showed this in, in solid tumor patients, that uh, a gene expression profile signature associated with interferon signaling, not interferon itself, uh, but interferon signaling was associated with non-durable responses, both in those solid tumors and now in our axi-cell-treated patients here. And that's the opposite of an interferon gamma gene signature profile associated with T-cell infiltration. We also found that non-durable responders had a, a macrophage gene signature profile uh, within their tumors. These are tumors taken before CAR T-cell treatment. Uh, we looked to the, the peripheral blood of these patients. There are suppressive um, uh, MDSCs, monocytic MDSCs within the blood of DLBCL patients. These are our CAR T-treated DLBCL patients have these suppressive myeloid cells prior to CAR T-cell therapy. And in fact, the number, both the, the, the frequency and the, the, um, the number in the blood associate, the higher number associate with lack of this durable response or associate with a non-durable response. And in fact, the number of these MDSCs prior to CAR T associates with their, their number after CAR T-cell therapy as well. So, um, we, we look back at these markers of systemic inflammation. Again, I mentioned ferritin, and we found that that high ferritin, um, here sort of looking at it over 1,000, was associated with that tumor macrophage um, profile and some specific genes here um, associated with interferon signaling. We also uh, looked at ferritin and associated with the M association with M MDSCs and did not find a clear link in this data set. So uh, it's already been described with AxiCell that the expansion of the CAR T cells associated with response, we, we um, recapitulated that. Uh, we show that non-durable responders don't have um, good expansion or, or as high of an expansion of AxiCell after um, infusion. And, um, and in fact, the, the expansion of CAR T cells was associated 
uh, with a good expansion with lower MMDSCs, interferon signaling genes associate with, this is within the tumor, those associate with poor axicell expansion. We also were interested to understand how the size of the tumor was associated with the systemic and tumor inflammation. We looked at metabolic tumor volume uh, measured by PET scan, just looking at the high or the low values, and found that ferritin uh, was associated with a higher ferritin associated with higher metabolic tumor volume. And in addition, higher tumor volume was associated with interferon genes. So as the tumor gets bigger, interferon gene expression goes up. So we looked at publicly available data sets. Uh, this is the NCI-CCR data set, DLBCL data set. This is work done by Xu Feng Wang at Moffitt. And we found that this ISGRS profile uh, independently clustered with myeloid cell signatures within this DLBCL data set. We also found that if we looked at ISG high versus ISG low, again, this is interferon signaling genes within this uh, data set, it's associated, high ISG is associated with checkpoint ligand expression. And finally, well, we show that interferon signaling can impact outcomes following frontline immunochemotherapy, again, the NCI data set, um, when uh, looking at ISG high versus low, um, or an optimized cutoff, you can see that uh, there is some association with uh, worse outcome when patients have this interferon-stimulated uh, gene expression profile. And in fact, that, that interferon-stimulated gene expression profile is associated with some driver mutations. DLBCL patients with systemic and tumor inflammation have worse outcomes after CAR T-cell therapy. Circulating MMDSC and tumor interferon signaling are associated with decreased CAR T-cell expansion and efficacy. Markers of systemic inflammation are associated with tumor interferon signaling, tumor myeloid cells, and decreased efficacy. But we really need larger data sets and in vivo models to better elucidate the mechanisms that govern both CAR T-cell expansion and its relation to the tumor size and the tumor and systemic suppressive microenvironment. Um, ongoing work uh, is evaluating the different interferons and their cells of origin within the DLBCL tumors and elucidating the impact of MYC and P53 signaling on efficacy, and uh, finally evaluating the role of tumor stroma. Thanks for sharing that update on CAR T-cell therapy, Frederick. Finally, we'll be hearing about the role of immunomodulatory imide drugs in the management of B-cell lymphomas from Francisco Hernandez Elizalaturi of the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in New York. As we know, lenalidomide and other IMIS, they have several mechanisms of actions, and a lot of advances have been done recently in defining how rabulimid or IMIS actually um, affect uh, the lymphoma cells in the back environment. We know that lenalidomide interacts with cerebrum and down-regulate transcription factors like acros that led to its anti-angiogenesis properties and to proliferative effects, as well as the activation of the immune system via T-cell, NK-cell, and, and then the T-cell activation. All of these uh, mechanisms of actions, they play a role in how lenalidomide um, attack lymphoma cells, and they have been in some, have been utilized in developing um, rational combination therapies in clinical settings. Um, one of the most important clinical trials that have been done uh, in the management of patients with follicular lymphoma has been the combination of rituximab and lenalidomide and was compared to rituxan chemotherapy. This particular randomized study was uh, founded in observations of 
um, um, significant activity of rituxan and lenalidomide in uh, previously treated follicular lymphomas or relapsed refractory follicular lymphomas. In this particular trial, um, there was no differences in patients treated with rituxan and lenalidomide in contrast to rituxan chemotherapy, suggesting that some patients with follicular lymphomas could be managed with a chemotherapy sparing regimen with uh, compatible clinical outcomes. Additional studies, uh, they were also done in patients with aggressive histologies with DLBCL that suggested that lenalidomide may was active in patients with no germinal center DLBCL. Uh, subsequently, um, studies were conducted in the first-line setting, looking at combining rituxan, CHOP plus minus lenalidomide. And in so on those particular studies, while there was small improvement in progression for survival, there were, in one of the studies, there was no significant uh, improvements in overall survival. Um, while that was not what was anticipated, you know, additional studies has in somehow highlighted that lenalidomide can be used in a subset of patients with uh, non germinal center DLBCL with good clinical outcomes. Um, I think this was uh, demonstrated by Westin from the MD Anderson that was looking at Smart Start Smart trial in which patients with high risk DLBCL of the non GCB were treated with two cycles of targeted therapy with aglutinib, lenalidomide, and rituximab, followed by six cycles of standard chemoimmunotherapy with targeted therapy as well. And what we found in this particular study that enrolled around 60 patients with um, um, high-risk API score or high k 67 uh, DLBCL is that, that the response rate to um, uh, ibrutinib, lenalidomide, and rituximab uh, after two cycles was quite high, you know, in around, uh, I think, the 60% range. And 100% of the patients responded at the end of all the treatment plan. More importantly, when they presented the, the progression for survival and the overall survival at one year in these patients, they can show that the progression for survival and overall survival of these patients was more than 90%. And again, kind of further suggesting that, you know, uh, lenalidomide may have a role in uh, the management of patients with DLBCL. Lenalidomide has also been utilized to further enhance other antis, uh, antibodies against B-cell lymphomas uh, because the capacity of lenalidomide to enhance natural killer cell function. So um, there was a clinical trial that combined tafacitumab, which is an anti-C19 uh, antibody, with lenalidomide in patients with a large refractory DLBCL. And in this particular study that enrolled patients who were not candidates for high-dose chemotherapy and hormonal transplant, uh, it demonstrated that in the second-line setting or beyond, um, there was a, a around 40% response rate in patients treated with the combination. But more importantly, the duration of the response was quite prolonged in patients that responded to treatment, suggesting that, you know, this kind of novel combination of an anti-C19 and an immunomodulatory drug could be clinically relevant in a selected group of patients with relapsed refractory DLBCL. Novel immunomodulatory drugs have been developed and are entering into the clinical trials that they are potentially more uh, active than lenalidomide or pomalidomide, like CC122, which has been developed in multiple myeloma and B-cell lymphomas, uh, CC220, which has been developed in multiple myelomas, and lately CC885, which has been developed against patients with myeloid leukemias. 
out of these particular compounds they capitalize in the interaction of cerebron with or with um with lenalidomide and how do they facilitate the process of degradation of key regulatory signaling uh, molecules that can be used for the uh, survival of uh, lymphomas or other malignancies uh, in this clinical, we kind of, uh, I wanted to highlight some of the clinical trials that are being done in patients with relapsed refractory uh, B-cell lymphomas or multiple melomas in which CC122 is being studied as a single agent or in combination with anti-C20 antibodies or with rituxan child chemotherapy or anti-C20 antibodies and uh, BTK inhibitors. I think what we have learned in terms of efficacy um, of uh, the CC122 in B-cell malignancies is that the activity is there in patients with relapsed refractory follicular lymphomas to less degree. There is also activity observed in patients with relapsed refractory DLBCL. The activity is seen in both subtype of DLBCL, GCBs or non-GCBs, and very encouraging results are being seen when you combine CC122 and rituxan CHOP. In terms of toxicities, I think all these clinical trials have suggested that CC122 is quite well tolerable. There is some neutropenia that has not been like threatening as well as fatigue, you know, but I think the toxicity profile of CC122 appears to be compatible to what has been seen with other amines in uh, clinical practice. Um, I think in summary, a better understanding of the mechanism of action of IMID is really paving the road for the incorporation of lenalidomide and other IMIDs in the management of patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphomas, some selected patients with diffuse cell lymphomas, and more importantly, patients with untreated or previously treated follicular lymphomas. I think novel cerebral inhibitors like CC122 and potentially CC220 are currently undergoing clinical evaluation in patients with BC malignancies, and the results are quite encouraging. I think uh, a better understanding of how cerebron, ytrilide gases, and imids interact in facilitating the proton degradation of key regulatory proteins of uh, cellular pathways will further aid in the discovery and development of novel imids with hopefully better anti-tumor activity. Thank you for that update, Francisco. That brings today's episode on immunotherapy in the microenvironment to a close. I'd like to thank all of our speakers for joining me today and our listeners for tuning in. To share your thoughts on today's topics, follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk. For more updates on the latest research in the field of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, visit VJHemonk.com. Finally, if you don't want to miss the next episode of the VJHemonk podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Podbeam.